Hi there, everyone. I'm Naomi Miller, and you're listening to Smashing the Ceiling, the podcast that tells the stories of women with interesting, unusual, and inspiring careers. I wanted to start today by mentioning a couple of other podcasts, one I've been enjoying for a while and a series that I've been listening to recently. In Good Company with Otega Uagba is a podcast for working women, featuring practical advice, fresh ideas, and interviews with smart, successful women. There are some brilliant episodes there, including a recent interview with Rennie Edo-Lodge, author of the best-selling book, Why I'm No Longer Talking to White People About Race. Rennie has also produced a podcast recently, About Race with Rennie, which is a brilliant series that I would urge everyone to listen to. It's opened my eyes to pervasive attitudes in this country on the subject of race, and has readjusted my own barometer of opinion once again. I thought my eyes were open on this one, but they really weren't, and I would encourage you all to check it out. The subjects of inequality and racial injustice are close to the heart of today's guests too, Amelia Viney and Saba Shafi. They are the CEO and Development Director of the Advocacy Academy, a transformational social justice fellowship for young people who are passionate about making a difference in the world. Across six months, they support young leaders from marginalised communities to develop the knowledge, skills and confidence to tackle some of the biggest challenges of the 21st century. Now, you'll hear Amelia in this interview say that she just dives in when she has an idea without a major plan in place beforehand. She's a woman after my own heart, although I'm often moderated by a husband that loves a spreadsheet. And that was rather how I started this podcast. I didn't know at the beginning that you shouldn't sit in your kitchen because it's really echoey or to tell your guests not to hang out in a coffee shop because of the background noise. So bear with us on this one. It's what these women say that is important and they are fantastic. I started by asking them both to introduce themselves. So my name is Saba. You know, I grew up in West London and I came over to the UK as a refugee from the Liberian Civil War um, before spending a number of years out in West London in the glamorous Perivale. Um, and uh, I, I spent almost all of my life in London and I lived the neoliberal gene, the dream. I went to, I got a scholarship to a good school. I got a good paying job. I paid off my mom's mortgage. And then I realized that it was not taking me anywhere useful. And I, um, I wanted to I wanted to do something that would truly address the systemic issues that had led to the troubles that I had faced growing up. And that's, you know, after a long winding route that involved management consulting, aviation, trip to the US, like I finally found media and the work that she does. And it's been a beautiful journey that I'm really proud of ending up at today. That's cool. Excellent. And Amelia, how about you? Oh, God. Um, essentially, the story of the Academy is really one of anger. And I think in lots of ways, so is my life. Um, I was always a kid who wanted to be involved in liberation of some kind. I think that is often the nature of young people who grew up in the Jewish community, who have family that died in the Holocaust, who recognize that actually two generations ago, that was us. And now we are very fortunate to have a level of, um, of affluence and security that our grandparents didn't, uh, but others don't. And so from a very young age, I knew that um, the only difference between people who were free and people who were not was other people. And I was lucky enough to be one of those uh, generation that got to pay it forward as opposed to have someone who could save me. Um, so from a very young age, that was that was my approach to life. It was my frame. But um, 
I really didn't understand how to make any meaningful change. And I thought, I really did believe that it was about power. So that I was right about, just not the kind of power. Um, I thought you get as much power as possible, you have as much influence as you can, and that will mean you can make the biggest change. So I ended up working in DC as a lobbyist and then coming back to Westminster and working in politics and actually in doing a lot of what we would call monolithic power politics, you know, trying to change decision makers' minds. What I saw was that we had a real problem with what we call now breaking the iron rule, the rule that says don't do for others what they can do for themselves. Because guess what? I am a now white middle-class girl who was um, very well-meaning, but fundamentally not able to represent the interest communities that had the had their ability to represent themselves. It, it was a, a really big issue because if I give somebody their liberation, I can take it away. Whereas if somebody takes their own liberation, they have the agency to, to make sure that it, it stays theirs. Um, and I saw time and again that every person in every room I went into in politics looked like me, spoke like me, went to Oxbridge like I did. And none of us had any idea what we were doing. I mean, we were young and idealistic, but we did not know the struggles of the communities we were trying to support. And I, at very similar time, ended up moving to where I am sitting right now, to Stockwell. And it, it was just a revelation to me that, um, that communities like Stockwell, which are vibrant, dynamic, loving, and, and really pretty special in this country, uh, have just no permeation of opportunity. They, they are within stone's throw of Westminster and they have no chance to actually influence any of the decisions that are happening in those corridors. Uh, and that's through structural oppression, through classism and racism and a whole bunch of others. And I thought, what would it be like if the kids who are on my bus every morning, who are rowdy and fantastic and, and just inspired in many ways, if they had the access and the, the ferocity and the knowledge to be able to not just hold decision makers to account for their choices, but to, to actually force their hand to make different choices. Um, and that's really where the academy came from, uh, a recognition that I should not be the one making those decisions. And the, the fact that I can be a bridge, a one generation bridge that, that transitions the power, that allows uh, what I know to be held in the hands of those who really deserve it and whose liberation are tied up in their own struggle. Um, and so that really is how we got where we are today, where I no longer have a job anyone understands, um, uh, but it certainly is more meaningful than the one that I had before. And so how did you, once you'd had the idea and you'd had this realization about this massive disconnect between the corridors of power and the people who need to benefit from the policies that they are implementing, how did you actually then uh, start things off, you know, practically? Uh, um, caveat, don't do it like I did it. <laughs> this is good to know, you see, because actually I think that when women are thinking about starting projects, actually it's the what not to do that is most useful or the, the stories that people want to hear to make sure that they don't do that too. 100%. And I think, you know, I had some really good advice I took none of it. So don't feel bad if I give you my advice and no one takes it. Um, I did not start a charity. I didn't start a social enterprise. I didn't sit down and think, you know, it'll be great structure, process, <laughs> plan. Um, I was, it was 2014 and the country was lost. I mean, really lost in the middle of austerity. 
And I was just pissed. I was done. I was so upset about what was happening. And I, in a different life, um, I have 10 years of youth work experience, uh, running youth movements and, and kind of doing radical and formal pedagogy and a whole bunch of other stuff. And basically, <laughs> I looked around and I saw that there were kids who weren't getting opportunities. And I went, screw it. I'm going to run an event. I'm going to run a five-day summer camp. I know how to run those. I'm going to pick the kids off basketball courts and the streets. I'm going to beg people who I've met in Westminster. I'm going to hustle anyone that's ever spoken to me on a lift. I'm basically going to put this together with like glue and duct tape and I'll see if it works. And don't get me wrong. Agile testing of things is a really good, a good idea according to the tech world, but you should have some sense of um, a plan for when it works, which of course I did not because as a woman, the level of self-deprecation we're taught is to think that everything's gonna fall apart when you try it <laughs> and that it will never work. So why bother thinking about the, the day after? Um, that's not what happened. Uh, we ran this five day event and we had 40 people volunteer. And it was like, I mean, we had everyone from members of parliament and their aides all the way through to heads of charities and, and heads of advocacy and, and radical activists. I mean, amazing people who recognize this disconnect too. Um, so I tried it, I threw some jelly at the wall, it happened to stick and I have been catching up ever since. And it really, it became something when those 12 kids who had been on the first program got together and said, this is too short, it is desperately needed and we're gonna make this into something real. So literally for the last three years, my job has been to deliver a program I had no money for and no strategy for because it was the right thing at the right time. And uh, and if I ever get to a point where our capacity is actually matching our ambition, I will be <laughs> deeply excited about that. And a lot of what Sav is doing so beautifully is creating the infrastructure around the thing that I've been running for four years um, so that it doesn't collapse if, heaven forbid, I got hit by a bus, which, you know, it would, it would no longer disappear thanks to Sava. And so, Sava, how did you guys meet and how did you get involved in the organisation? I had uh, just finished my master's at Wharton Business School and I, I came back to the U UK and I wanted to, I was looking into community activism work here and I got in touch with NFP Consulting, a recruitment firm, and spoke to a woman who's now one of our trustees, Shivani Smith, and she, I asked her about a different charity and she pushed me towards the Avsi Academy and at the time I was like, what? No, um, and I think testament to her skill as a as a recruiter was the um, was that she knew from this from what I had told her that this would be the better fit, and then it was a really quick process. Um, yeah, you know, true to the values that Amelia mentioned before, you know, it was about getting to know us as individuals. It was about you know the notions of justice. It was discussion about growth and strategy, but but more about core values. And that was it. And then our organization grew twofold. So the first I heard about the Advocacy Academy was when I saw uh, Liv Francis Cornabet on stage at The Guilty Feminist, which was brilliant. Anyone who hasn't listened to it should definitely listen. Um, and she was talking about their campaign. Um, so that's obviously been one of the big kind of successes and one of the most covered in the media I presume of your campaigns so far can you just tell us a little bit about that and how that got off the ground absolutely isn't it nice when the kids are the reason that people know about us she is amazingly articulate and clearly very smart she is remarkable and 
And actually, it's really interesting. If you think about Liv, it's actually a very good example of some of the kids that we deal with. Liv looks beautifully put together, right? And when you meet her, you think, oh, she's, she's totally great. Why does she need the academy? But when you actually know Liv's story about the amount of misogyny and racism that she's experienced in her life, about the fact that her, her, she lives with a grandmother because her family has some pretty serious fractures. Um, and she grew up with nothing. She's a working class kid with absolutely nothing. Um, and so she was angry for lots of good reason, but had never in her life taken any serious action. And that can lead to a real um, alienation from society. When you get up every day and you re realize that society wasn't built for you, it just is fracturing for a person's identity, a person's sense of belonging. And, and live searched out opportunities to change it. And we were the opportunity she could find because guess what? If you're 16 years old and you have those feelings, what are you gonna do, join the National Youth Orchestra? Um, so it was, a real, uh, it was a real boon for me to see someone like Liv on a, a national stage, many national stages talking about this campaign because her face, her voice, her story does not get told. Um, backtrack. So the Academy is built on uh, a principle of radical education that believes in the duality of education and action, that neither is suitable by itself. You can't teach somebody and not give them a path to make change, and you can't ask them to make change without really being formidable in their understanding of structure, strategy, tactics, etc. And that's quite unusual because getting 16-year-olds to do serious action is considered really risky, which to me is ironic considering we put them through high-stakes testing that can ruin their mental health by 14, but apparently getting them to actually impact the world is dangerous. Um, so what we do is we build the, the program that we run, this 300-hour program, to be able to have this, this track of campaigning throughout it that is supported by expert activists and a lot of education so that both these young people can draw on amazing examples of change that have happened in the past. And that is, we look at the civil rights movement, we look at Cesar Chavez, we look at you know really important moments in the Mothers of the Plaza del Mayo and Gandhi and all of this stuff that teaches us how nonviolent action works, how it's been successful. But we also just let them fail, right? We let them do it themselves. And, um, and at the end of our first 12 days, which is this residential in summer, all of our kids pick an issue that they, they genuinely believe their life would not be complete without doing something about. That's just in their gut. And for Liv and Kofi and Belle and Shaden, who were the four kids that made up Legally Black, they all knew that there was a, a really big issue with both the underrepresentation and the misrepresentation of blackness in our media, specifically blackness, not people of color. And, um, and they just wanted to see people who looked like them, spoke like them, were like them, represented in complex and, and dynamic characters. And that doesn't mean one tokenistic kid in skins, that means whole black narratives, that means black British culture, that means the stuff that they see in their daily lives in Brixton every day. And they didn't want that to be some kind of niche story that was only relevant to black kids watching it. They wanted some kid in Hartlepool to be like, that's so cool, I really engage and understand these narratives. But they had no idea how to do it because, of course, when you're 17, all you want is to just see a program commissioned on television. And actually, there is a journey to that process. And so what we did was we helped deconstruct both the, the kind of action that would make them feel powerful, but also how they could get in the room with commissioners who are predominantly white men who make the choices about what gets paid for by Channel 4 or Netflix or whomever is in charge of the uh, most recent <laughs> Amazon Prime version. Um, and so what they did was they sat down and said, even if we lose, we want something that wins. So we want a campaign that is in itself 
somehow changing the narrative. And that's where this idea of reclaiming public space came from, right? Because even if they lose, there are more black faces in society, therefore they have won on representation grounds. So by coming up with a poster campaign that took over bus stops, and specifically they didn't know how to do that, but they knew they would figure out how to find people that did, they decided to, to try and target, actually ironically, first of all, them at 12 or 13. The kid was standing at a bus stop in Brixton, looking at yet another Eurocentric advert for a program that doesn't represent them. What would it be like for that 12 or 13 year old to look at a bus stop poster and go, oh my God, that is so cool. That kid looks just like me. And to change the way that those young people thought about potential. So that was the first target. And the second really big piece was if we could get enough attention for that kind of clever creative action, that ad hacking piece, can we start a national conversation about representation that gets us in the room with commissioners. And of course, you know, we were clever about it, but I don't think anyone could have predicted what a viral sensation it would become. And when I put those two, I put Shudan and Liv on a train to Manchester to talk to the BBC in the clothes they were wearing, they were like, do you think my parents are going to be okay with this? Like, you're going on primetime television. I think I can speak them into it. You'll be fine. Um, so it was a real, even for us, it was a real first time um, experience. And we haven't yet learned how to absorb the interest that's come from it because there must be a thousand emails that came through. And as a two-person organization, we punched above our weight in this one. And it's like, thank you. <laughs> and one of the things that um, often when you talk to not-for-profits and, and small charities and small organizations like yours, one of the big limiting factors is funding for getting your campaigns or your projects off the ground how do you go about funding what you're doing because 300 hours per kid is quite a lot to go on and uh you know obviously you're garnering some support from some pretty influential people so how does that work i take this question in 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 a couple of ways um first to say that there are a growing number of organizations, specifically funders in the space, people like Paul Hamlin, um, like Esme Fairburn, like um, the Blaygrave Trust, who are comfortable in this space, who feel confident about youth, who believed at their core about the necessity of youth empowerment, about depth work, not just ticking numbers um, and trying to reach superficially as many young people as possible. Um, it's growing, but it's not growing as fast as we, as a charity, need it to. Um, and it is often frustrating. And I think, you know, the interesting challenge that we face is, you know, we are a depth program. Like we, we, every single person that goes through the fellowship is, you know, retains their active engagement within their community that they're a part of. They all stay within the alumni pool. They we have a waiting list um, that's embarrassing long for embarrassingly long for people to come and volunteer again and lead the next um, the next cohort of of graduates that are coming through. Um, we cannot stop our alumni from being involved with us, which is a beautiful problem to have. Um, but they're creating this sort of vast change. Um, and, and, you know, we feel very confident that our depth work is successful. We feel confident in the fact that we are tackling structural change, not just helping people who have already been failed by the system. A lot of people aren't comfortable with that. Um, and I think, you know, there's part of the work that we have had to do, part of the work that Amelia has had to do, has been to push a lot of funders into being comfortable with that language. 
And some of the things that, you know, we know that there is a limit to how much we will adapt the language that we use to make people feel comfortable with us. Um, and I think it's the right approach. It's true to the integrity with which we work with our young people. It's true to the, um, it's true to the young people that, you know, that they, they are advocates that want to be associated with us. I think they'd be really embarrassed and ashamed if we suddenly let go of the principles. And it's, you know, the way what we're working on now is just innovative ways of trying to move past it. And that means in some ways moving beyond the foundation, uh, a foundation or a grant making approach. It's thinking about how individual donor appeals work. It's thinking about commissioning work. It's thinking about um, being a sustainable commercial, a sustainable enterprise from a developing revenue streams, but developing them for to create a larger impact. The only other thing that I will say is just going back to this idea of, um, you know, I come from a I come from a corporate background. A lot of my colleagues, they hate the idea of nonprofits because they think that there's a lot of waste. They think that it's, they don't scale fast enough. They think it's about, they just, you just need to get more. More doesn't mean better. It just means more. And if your goal is to create long lasting change to have a real impact, then you cannot compromise on quality. And if we aren't delivering the depth work and the sustainable work, then, you know, what's the point? Yeah. I mean, don't get us wrong. Right? There are definitely times and we're like, wait, maybe, just maybe. I mean, that's just like so much money and we have like dollar signs in our eyes. But, you know, we have to, like, it's, it's good to, you know, we have a huge, um, our advocates are amazing. Our trustees are amazing. And they are, they are great at reminding us that we are the ones who will shout at them when they tell us to do things like this. So whenever we get distracted by big flashy things, you know, everybody, each other in check here none of us are great none of us are perfect at this I think and I think honestly one of the best things ever is before Saba I'd walk into rooms and have business people telling me that it didn't matter if I was working really successfully because I was working with a tiny number of kids and I had to be national in five years and I wasn't taking me seriously and then Saba comes along with her business degree and can just look at them and be like here are 15 examples of when that's not a good thing so it's excellent to have someone who speaks the corporate language and doesn't therefore end up in and I wish there wasn't this disconnect I wish actually people looked at you know someone with a political and education background and took me seriously but it doesn't work like that you really have to be able to take them at their own ground and and once they respect us well then they're on board so I think having a dynamic uh, team that really does not have the same skill set in any way has um has really played well for us so you two are clearly very complementary your skills are extremely complementary of one another yeah we're like a jigsaw puzzle Amelia is my career soulmate she's like <laughs> And how do you um, go about recruiting the kids? What's the selection procedure for the young people? So um, we have a, a pretty simple philosophy, which is that actually we have to be responsible for the activation moment where the kid for the first time ends up going, oh my God, this is something I really want to do. I didn't realize how angry I was. And most organizations don't do that. Most of them end up with referrals or they the kids kind of find them on the internet, we say, no, we have to go into the, the houses they live in and figure out how to get them on the program. So we go into almost all the schools that, um, in Lambeth, we go into every school bar one that has kids at the age that we work with, uh, our alumni who are remarkable deliver all of our assemblies. They're particularly provocative. The schools kind of like it actually. Um, I mainly talk about how Pythagoras theorem ain't going to set you free, right? Like you can do really well in life 
But if you want the world to change, then guess what? There are other battles to be fought other than you and your exams and, and your grades. Um, and it works. And kids go, I've been waiting for someone to walk in and, and give me permission to care about this stuff and look beyond the four walls of my school or my home. Um, they're just at that age. 16 is an amazing age where they start to see the problems of the world and recognize that actually there is more happening than they've been led on to believe. Um, so we go in, we do those assemblies. We ask young people to write us 300 words on an issue that makes them angry. And that issue has to be something personal that they have lived experience of because nobody has the right to tell women in a different country how they should behave. And um, and it also is a very deliberate process. We are explicit about looking for young people who are mainly from low-income communities of color, young people who have uh, experienced sexual violence or LGBT or are disabled or don't have status, that kind of um, level of marginalization in our society. And when they apply, anyone that has written something personal and powerful gets invited to a conversation with our alumni. And two of the alumni sit with each young person who applies for 45 minutes to really look at um, if they need it, because we don't need to take a bunch of kids who actually are going to do this work anyway. We need the kids who, who need the intervention. And then we also look for uh, a complementary community of people that will stand in solidarity with each other, because it's really important that if your job is at this point to fight for your own liberation on racial grounds, that actually the trans kids sitting next to you, you are able to fight for their liberation and vice versa. So we look for a community of interest that, that can do that for each other. Um, and then we pick our young people. Well, I don't pick any of them, but the alumni pick the person that's going to replace them, essentially. And so it's a, it's a turnover that allows for generational um, care and, and, and relationships to be formed. And they do all stay in contact and meet each other and, and are part of each other's journey. So that is the recruitment process. It is quite extensive. And as we grow, thinking about how we maintain that personal connection is going to be really important to us. Um, but we already interview 70 people a year. It's impossible and ridiculous. And so that is going to take some thought. And how many of those 70 do you take into each intake? We take about 20 to 25. So okay. this year we're hoping for 24. Um, we take every kid we think is ready and every kid we can afford. So literally with every pound donated, we are able to take more kids. That's how it works. And um, fingers crossed one day, although we'll keep our cohort small because they have to be community sizes that can be kind of in relationship with each other. Um, we will continue to add cohorts uh, for as long as there are kids who are ready for the program. And what are some examples of um, things that your alumni have gone on to do at the moment? Have you got any any good examples of where they've gone on to to do things, or how? And you presumably got sort of three years three years worth of alumni now. Yep, um, I'm happy to give you three very quick ones. So. Definitely the things that make me the most excited are seeing the kids when they win a battle. To me, that is the moment when it clicks for them that actually, this isn't a hobby. This is their lives. This is, this is their futures. This is the world. Um, three wonderful examples. One is very recent. So two days ago, Transport for London finally agreed to give the Advocacy Academy and Citizens UK in partnership a piece of land in Streatham, a very uh, expensive piece of land to build a community land trust of affordable housing. And the campaign launched three years ago with a bunch of kids in a room who said, one day I want to own a house in my community at an average wage. I don't want to have to become a millionaire and I don't want to have to leave my home. And we were like, yeah, that's cute. Um, and they said, no, I'm serious. Find us a way. And the way is community land trusts. They are houses that are able to be bought and sold at average income. They're essentially taken out of the market. Uh, they're owned, the, the, the houses and the land are owned in trust by the community. And they're given to 
people like teachers and nurses and care workers who need to stay in the community or else our infrastructure crumbles. And our kids launched that campaign, have run that campaign, got the council on board, got CFL on board, got the land two days ago. And the final part of the process before we end up with 22 units of housing built by young people is getting planning permission. So they're currently in the consultation phase of the community. That is quite something, isn't it? Isn't it? And it was spearheaded by a young man, Darren Keenan, who lives with his grandmother in an estate in central Brixton. And you know what? That kid is going to break ground on housing for people in his community before the age of 25. So That's amazing. Um, the second is a campaign that we're still working on, actually, that has seen some movement and is continuing to move. Uh, Selena is a young woman who I adore, who is a Latin American leader, she's Latinx, uh, and she just could not deal with the invisible nature of Latin American uh, immigrants in this country. It's, the, the level of exploitation is, is just out of this world. Uh, there's about 200,000 Latin American people in Lambeth and Southwark, and she's one of them. And nobody knows that fact because most of them work three jobs, um, mainly in manual labor and, and genuinely. You see them on the buses at six in the morning, and that's about it. And she wanted her community to be recognized, but one of the huge problems and barriers to that is that Latinx isn't a box on any forms in Lambeth or Southwark. You can't tick that box on any council forms. So how are you able to count any serious demographic uh, information? And what she really wanted was to be able to actually start collecting data on these people in order to force the hand of the government to create policies that benefit her community. But she also just didn't want for any more uh, moments of her life to have to tick other and then explain what that looked like. So she ended up um, running a big campaign that got her in the room with the head of HR at Lambeth Council, who on the spot agreed to put Latinx on every single HR form in the council. And she is now, after much turnover of this particular position in Lambeth, she's now having a meeting with the chief executive to talk about every single form that comes out of the council having Latinx boxes on it. Um, and that is just a, a wonderful conversation to be had by an 18-year-old Latin American girl. So she is doing exceptional things um, and has also led on the program and is just pretty great. I'll give you one more. And that is actually one of the earliest campaigns that we ran. Uh, Amal, a young woman on our program who was a hijab and a bayah wearing Muslim, um, was very deeply impacted by the rise in Islamophobia. And in particular, she had as a child experienced a lot of uh, pretty direct hate, um, but as the world became more and more uh, hostile with Trump and with Brexit, um, she started to realize that uh, there was a, an agenda coming out of our tabloid newspapers to divide the British community and isolate the Muslim community within it. Um, and what she wanted to do was to bring a group of young British Muslims to sit in front of the editor of The Sun and explain to him the impact that his headlines were having on young British Muslims. So he could not unsee or unhear their testimony, which had never been done before. No group like that had ever met the editor of The Sun. And she got together this really remarkable group of young Muslims who made a video calling out for a meeting in front of Tooting Mosque. Um, and after it went viral and 200,000 people shared it, they went to the, the headquarters of The Sun and had this meeting and uh, had a really difficult and pretty frank conversation with him. Um, and what's interesting is lots of promises were made and we'll see how much of those um, promises are maintained, right? I think that's, there's a question now about how we create structures of accountability, which we're now looking at in the academy of somebody says something that's nice. People have said things many times in their lives. So how do we hold them to it? So that's our next phase. Uh, but in the interim, we have continued to fight Islamophobia and two of our kids this year uh, who are amazing, Idris and Ferdosa, have just launched a not a terrorist 
um, photo exhibition, which is at the Battersea Arts Centre right now, of, of really young, fabulous Muslims in our community and how they look at Islam and its role in their lives. So that has maintained itself as a theme throughout much of our work. Um, and I'm sure it will continue to looking at the statistics as they are now. Excellent. That's really awesome. Gosh, I could talk to you guys all day. It's just so cool. Um, and if people want to find out more about your work, where is the best place for them to go and look? I think a great place to to start from so that I guess any listeners aren't hurriedly running for their pens would be um, our website, um, theadvocacyacademy.com. Just send us an email, give us a call. I think our phone number is also on the site. We are pretty flexible. Um, if you, you know, definitely follow us on Twitter, um, which is where we're most active. And otherwise, if, you, if people want to get involved, send us an email. Um, and we will we will figure out a way to make it work. And um, in terms of people um, volunteering and and helping on your programs, presumably you'd have you mentioned quite a lot of activists, people involved in politics. What sort of backgrounds of people are you looking for to to help with that kind of thing? You know, we have just I guess for a sense of the range of people that that work with us, we do have activists, we do have people who work within the community. Um, we also have, um, you know, we have a real estate expert who works at Allen and Overy helping us on um, legal issues around real estate procurement. We have a um, we have a woman who used to work for the Gates Foundation, um, looking at marketing and comms, helping us figure out how to put out a press release which was a new one for us and uh, like we have you know it's, you know I'm speaking to somebody later today who used to do a lot of work um within database to try and just help us think through some like some issues some really technical issues as we grow like we will if you if people have experience we are we are growing so fast that there will be a use for the talents they have it seems like you guys are the kind of women who really know how to get things done, I have to say. It's very inspiring to hear you both. And um, it sounds like the work that you're doing is just positively impacting so many young people. What are your future hopes for the organisation? You know, the I, you know, the vision is that we're everywhere, right? We are the sort of the... the we become we become the pervasive like voice that's in everybody's like TV on every in everybody's letterbox. But you know, for us, it's not about it's not necessarily about geographical expansion. You know, it's if 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 we're going to expand, it's going to be targeting going to areas that need us the most, and there's a limitation to how where we expand within London, and then we'll probably look beyond that. Um, the way in which we do so is kind of interesting and we're looking at how we do that at the moment it might not always involve working with young people um, we're looking at opportunities to potentially work directly with teachers directly with youth workers working with other organizations that and going through maybe a train the trainer model what i would say more generally is that you know we are at this incredible nexus point like there is we have doubled our revenue like this year and last year, we are growing super fast. We are bringing in people, um, incredible talent very quickly. And we are figuring all of that out now about where we go and what we want to achieve. And it's a fantastic time to be involved with what we do. Uh, we've been working with as many partners and people as we can find with, you know, again, that sense of humility and curiosity 
to figure out what is the best way that we can scale our impact at a sustain in a sustainable way. Um, and so I guess I don't want to give you a cop-out answer, but we take over the world, maybe our kids are like in charge of everything. Um, and like everybody thinks we're the bomb. And there we have it. I'm pretty sure most people would agree with that. If you follow us on social media, which you really should, at Smashing Ceiling on Twitter and at Smashing the Ceiling on Instagram, you may have seen me posting about the Academy's fundraising for their new headquarters, which will include the first ever campus for youth activists in the UK. The building will be a space of learning, encounter and empowerment where young people can come together to organise for real and lasting change. If you'd like to donate, then go to hubbub, that's H-U-B-B-U-B dot org forward slash the Advocacy Academy and you can donate there. That's all for this time. Thanks for joining us. You've been listening to Smashing the Ceiling with me, Naomi Mella. Please subscribe if you haven't already and feel free to leave a nice review on your favourite podcast site as it helps others to find us. More importantly, if you enjoyed it, spread the word as word of mouth is still the most powerful form of advertising. We'll hopefully see you next time. <laughs>